Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. If you've ever seen or smelled a corpse flower bloom, lucky you. <laughs> it turns out there's a lot going on within those mysterious plants that smell like rotting human flesh. And it shows just how far parasites will go when it comes to hijacking DNA. That's next. Explore other science mysteries in the Quanta book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press. Available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. Also, make sure to tell your friends about the Quanta Magazine Science Podcast and give us a positive review or follow where you listen. It helps people find this podcast. They're invisible at first. In their Southeast Asian forest homes, they grow as thin strands of cells. They're sometimes more than 10 meters or 32 feet long, weaving through the vital tissues of their vine hosts. They siphon nourishment from those hosts. And even under a microscope, the single file lines of cells are nearly indistinguishable from the vine's own. They seem more like a fungus than a plant. But when the drive to breed awakens them, the members of the Rafflesiaceae family bloom as immense, stemless, rubbery red corpse flowers covered in polka dots. The flower feels like a wet Nerf football. They smell like rotting meat, which is designed to draw pollinating flies. The blooms of one species, Rafflesia arnoldii, are the largest flowers in the world. Each one can be more than one meter or three feet across and weigh as much as a toddler. I've always been fascinated by it. It produces the largest flowers in the world that smells like rotting flesh, and it does smell. I've been in the field with it so many times that when I smell it, I know it's there. But to me, it's, you know, it's a good smell because I know it's there. Like, finally, <laughs> after, you know, hours of trekking, more than a decade ago, Rafflesiaceae parasites caught the eye of Jean-Marie Molina, an evolutionary plant biologist at Long Island University in Brooklyn. I've already read about Rafflesia, like in the Guinness Book of World Records for producing the largest flowers in the world. So I've heard about it like in college, but it was only in 2004 that I really saw it in the flesh as part of a field biology course in Malaysia. So at that time, even if I'm originally from the Philippines, at that time, we didn't really know that we have many species in the Philippines. So I just got to see it in Malaysia as part of a field course. And I saw the medium species, which is like one foot in diameter, and that really intrigued me. Molina wondered if their genomes were as bizarre as their outward forms. Her initial investigations suggested they were. As she and her colleagues described it in a 2014 paper in Molecular Biology and Evolution, they successfully assembled the mitochondrial DNA from one Philippine species of Rafflesia. But they weren't able to detect any functional genes from its chloroplasts. The plants seem to have simply ditched their entire chloroplast genome. That was almost unthinkable. Chloroplasts are best known for using light to make food, but like all of the food-making organelles called plastids, they contain genes that are involved in lots of key cellular processes. 
Molina points out even malaria parasites still carry a plastid genome, and their last photosynthetic ancestor lived hundreds of millions of years ago. When we think of plants, we think of plants being able to produce its own food, but it has completely abandoned that. This shocking finding has now been confirmed by an independent research team from Harvard University. They recently published a draft genome for another member of the Rafflesiaceae family in current biology. It's full of surprises showing how far parasites can go in shedding unnecessary genes and acquiring useful new ones from their hosts. It also deepens mysteries about the role of highly mobile genetic elements that don't encode proteins in enabling evolutionary changes. Perhaps the greatest lesson of the study is how much we still have to learn about genomics, particularly in plants and in parasites, a category of organisms that includes more than 40% of all known species. Like Molina, Charles Davis was also drawn into studying the Rafflesiaceae. Davis is a professor of organismic and evolutionary biology at Harvard and the curator of vascular plants in Harvard's herbaria. These are easily the most charismatic and enigmatic of all the quarter million species of flowering plants, right? I mean, you've got this kind of unusual biology where you have on the reproductive side, you've got the largest flowers in the world. And then on the other end of the spectrum, all that remains of the leaves and the stems and the roots is sort of a, a little necklace of cells that winds their way through the host body. And so it's just, you know, <laughs> they're, they're really strange. Davis has been trying to reveal their many secrets for nearly 15 years, but a nuclear genome sequence always proved elusive. We just didn't have the technology and the expertise then and, or the funding to get this going. And the advancements in the last three years have really made tackling difficult genomes possible on smaller budgets. Davis's doctoral student, Lee Ming Kai, finally stepped up to spearhead the project. Kai is now a postdoctoral researcher in systemic biology at the University of California, Riverside. With the help of Harvard's informatics group and its director of bioinformatics, Timothy Sackton, the team was finally able to put together a draft genome for Sapria himalayana, it's a species with blooms the size of a human head. Sapria's genome follows several trends seen in many other parasitic plants. Like them, Sapria has done away with many genes considered essential to its free-living relatives. Because parasites steal from their hosts, they essentially outsource the labor of metabolism, so they don't need all of the moving biochemical parts of an independent plant cell. Still, Davis was shocked to see that nearly half of the genes widely conserved across plant lineages had disappeared from Sapria. That's more than twice as many genes as are lost from the parasitic plants called daughters, and that's four times the losses in witch weeds that kill cereal crops like corn, sorghum, and rice. It's been well known for a long time that plant parasites exhibit reduced genomes. We knew that there would be loss, but we didn't think it would be on the order of, you know, 44% of its genes. That's in addition to the deletion of the whole plastid genome that Molina's work on Rafflesia had suggested. The only other organisms known to have done away with that genome are a kind of single-celled algae, which gave up photosynthesis in favor of absorption from the waters around them. For Kai, 
that left a question. It makes you wonder how can a plant survive with half of the essential genes that's missing in the genome. And I think, as my advisor put it, it's almost a miracle that they survived today and we got to see them. Molina says she found the confirmation of her team's finding comforting. It was validating because for some time since our paper came out in 2014, that was like we titled it possible loss of the chloroplast genome. So now we have another plant to verify what we said at that time. So it feels very good. (laughs) But Molina says it's also confusing because Rafflesia still seem to make their plastid compartments. There are a few other parasitic plants out there and their plastid genomes have been published. So even if they were small, even if they were reduced, there's a plastid genome. They have lost the photosynthetic genes, but there are other genes that have been retained. But we did not find any evidence of that in Rafflesia. So that was quite controversial. And another very interesting thing is that when we did electron microscopy studies, we found plastids. So it's just quite bizarre that the plastids are empty. That has never been documented before. Sapria also seems to have cut other genetic corners. The plants have deleted the non-coding stretches of DNA within many genes. These regions, called introns, are interspersed among the parts of genes that code for the actual protein that's produced. It might sound as though Sapria and its kin have simply made their genome smaller and more efficient. But Sapria's genome is actually big. Between an estimated 3.2 and 3.5 gigabases of DNA in total, roughly the same size as ours. So what's filling up its genome? For starters, it's loaded with stolen genes. Davis's team estimated that at least 1.2% of the plant's genes came from other species, particularly its hosts, past and present. That might not sound impressive, but this kind of horizontal gene transfer is considered exceptionally rare outside of bacteria. So even a single percent of stolen genes raises eyebrows. These parasites have been stealing genes for millennia. Kai says there's obviously no fossil record, but these horizontally transferred genes serve as DNA fossils. So as they transferred from the host, to the parasite, and they are fixed in the genome of the parasite. And then some of these genes carry important functions, but there are also horizontally transferred genes. They lose their function, but they sit in the genome. So when we sequence the genome, it's like we are working in a huge graveyard of dead DNA. By carefully digging through that graveyard and comparing its contents to the genomes of 10 types of vines that seemed like potential hosts, Kai and her colleagues were able to look back in time. Using these horizontally transferred genes, we are able to find an extinct host parasite association that dates back to maybe mid-Cretaceous. Today, the roughly four dozen known species of Rafflesiaceae all infest vines from a single genus, Tetrastigma. But long before the parasites infested Tetrastigma, they seem to have infested and stolen from pepper vines. 
This kind of ecological history is all but impossible to deduce from stony fossils. The parasite's flowers don't last long, and the thin, thread-like remains of its vegetative body are unlikely to fossilize. Yet, stolen genes represent only a tiny fraction of Sapria's huge genome. The vast majority of it consists of copies of DNA sequences called transposable elements. These are known as transposons, or jumping genes. Here's Timothy Sackton. The genome of this plant is something like 90% repeat elements. That high level of repetition is why Davis struggled so long to assemble a draft genome for Sapria. Until about the past decade, genome sequencing technologies were easily stymied by DNA with too many indistinguishable repetitive sequences. Here's Sackton again. The sort of standard way dating back to the Human Genome Project and the Drosophila genome before that of assembling genomes was to sequence these little short pieces, like shotgun sequencing, right? And then put them all together. And if 90% of those little pieces are all exactly the same, there's no way to put them together. It's like trying to do a puzzle of a completely clear blue sky where every piece is exactly the same shape. There's just no way to do it. But Kai and her colleagues were able to take advantage of current sequencing technologies, which can handle much longer, more distinctive stretches of DNA. Even so, they were only able to reconstruct what they estimate is 40% of the Sapria genome. The rest was still too repetitive. Saima Shoheed says this abundance of transposable elements is striking. Shoheed is a plant biologist with the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center in St. Louis. She studies the functions of transposable elements in plants. It's about twice what's seen in daughters. And in the other plant parasite sequence to date, the dominant elements are retrotransposons. Those move within the genome by first being transcribed into RNA. But Sapria is mostly filled with DNA transposons that repeatedly copy and paste themselves into the genome directly. Here's Shoheed. There's something very interesting and unique. However, there is a lot of the genome that was sequenced because of the repetitive content. So once everything is assembled, the percentage might vary. But so far, it looks very interesting that they have a high DNA transposon content, which is not similar to the other parasitic plants that have been sequenced. But why does Sapria have so many of these jumping genes in the first place? No one is yet sure, but the answer may transform our understanding of parasite genomics. Transposable elements are considered selfish genes. They replicate even at the expense of the genome they occupy. For that reason, host genomes usually rein in their expression, says Shoheed. Most of the transposable elements in the genome, they are recognized and silenced by plants, or like even in us, they are silenced by chromatin modifications to make sure these are not expressed and these are not able to move. Because if they start moving, our genome will not be stable, right? So mm -hmm. most of the time, they're targeted and highly silenced. It seems that either regulation has somehow gone awry in the Rafflesiaceae, or the parasites find some benefit in letting these elements jump around. Kai, Davis, and Sackton have a hunch that the superabundance of transposons is a consequence of the isolated lives these parasites lead.
because Rafflesiaceae only invade tetrastigma vines. Each patch of vines is practically a desert island isolating its parasitic inhabitants. In small populations with restricted growth and little gene flow from the outside, even less helpful genetic features can become more commonplace through sheer chance. Kai explains the theory. These kind of deleterious mutations accumulate through time. In the end, you ended up with these highly atypical gene structures. Another possibility is that the parasites can't stop their jumping genes from jumping. Sackton explains. You get some kind of repeat element from tetrastigma, from the host that jumps into the parasite, and then has free reign to just expand because there's nothing stopping it in that new genome. It's like an invasive species, basically. And I think that's quite tricky to sort out because the phylogenetics of these repeats is very complicated. It could also be that given how much genetic material the parasites acquire, they evolved adaptations that raised their tolerance for the extra burden of useless DNA. That would mean there simply isn't enough selection pressure to rid them of these jumping genes. But to Shoheed, that doesn't make sense. The genome shows so many signs of streamlining, with the loss of genes, non-coding sequences within genes, and an entire plastid genome. Even if you are not getting rid of them, if you're carrying them within the genome, that means you must spend a lot of energy in order to silence them. So the plant is investing that much. So I don't think they're completely useless because in that case, it will be so much easier to lose them. Shoheed finds it more likely that these transposons are doing something for the parasite. The question is, what? Their presence might be tied to all those stolen genes. Shoheed says when transposons jump, they often bring bits of nearby DNA with them. These transposons might be helping them to carry gene fragments and then insert into their own genome. The transposons might then be the engines driving horizontal gene transfers that the parasite needs to survive. For example, they might help the parasite steal some of the host's important gene regulators. What has been shown for parasitic plants is that they have a tendency to steal genes from their host, and often they would steal genes that are actually benefiting their parasitic lifestyle or they have stolen genes from the host and they have used it for like some function that is useful for them. In a 2018 paper in Nature, Shoheed and her colleagues showed that parasitic plants called field daughters export tiny microRNA molecules into surrounding host cells as off signals for some of the host's genes. The move is presumably to shut down defenses that would interfere with the theft of the host's resources. Those microRNA controls may have made their way into the parasite with the help of a jumping gene. Still, no one's investigated whether Sapria and its relatives export microRNAs during their dormant stage. Transposons can influence gene regulation in other ways. For instance, when inserted into introns, they can enhance a gene's expression, or they can guide inhibitors to shut the gene down. In Sapria, not all the introns have been reduced in length, says Li Ming Kai. 
Flowering plants, they generally on average have quite small introns. They rarely exceed one kilo bases. But however, for some reason, we found in Sapria and perhaps in other Rafflesiaceae as well, that many of those genes have introns exceed one kilo bases and sometimes can be as long as 100 kilo bases. Now, this is definitely at the range of record-breaking intron size. And transposable elements are responsible for 74% of all the expansions. Transposable elements can cause chunks of the genome to move around, too. Shoheed says that can be dangerously destabilizing, but can also lead to gene duplication and innovation. That might help parasites stay a step ahead of their host's defenses. Transposons could also be responsible for some of the unique features in these plants, says Jean-Marie Molina. I started to wonder if that has something to do with the evolution of a large flower. Because in some studies, they say that transposons can insert themselves into any part of the genome, and so it can alter the genome. And in that way, it can introduce novelties, like new features, new traits. So I'm starting to wonder if it has something to do with the large flowers. Without more information, it's impossible to tell how much of the huge cache of transposable elements in the Rafflesiaceae is functional and how much is just genomic clutter. Shoheed says one way to get to the bottom of all this might be to take a closer look at where different kinds of transposable elements sit in relation to other genomic features. That could help reveal whether the elements are playing pivotal roles in gene expression. She would also like to see if or when these transposable elements are being expressed. That could also give clues to their potential functions in the genome. Further research on these floral oddities could teach us a lot about everything from plastids to jumping genes. But the scarcity of the plants makes probing these questions much harder. Molina says it's difficult to get into some areas where the plant grows in the Philippines. One site, it takes four hours to trek there. I have to coordinate with the mayor because we have like rebels against the government and they reside in the forest. And so we have to coordinate with the mayor to make sure it's safe. So it is quite dangerous hunting for it. And the countries where these flowers grow often restrict their export, in part because the plants are critically endangered. Because of their rarity, Molina is working with the United States Botanic Garden in Washington, D.C. to cultivate these parasites and their host vines domestically. Coaxing them to grow and bloom in Washington would bring them into the public eye. She thinks allowing people to see them in person would help with conservation efforts and enable much more detailed research. For now, though, these parasites that stretch the definition of what plants can be are keeping their secrets to themselves. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Christy Wilcox's full article, DNA of Giant Corpse Flower Parasite Surprises Biologists, on our website, quantamagazine.org. 
Quanta Magazine is an editorially independent online publication launched by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science.